Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House, which focuses on international climate politics and the UN climate negotiations. My name is Anne Åberg. I'm a research associate at Chatham House, and I'm here today in the recording studio with my colleague and dear podcast co-host, Anthony Froggett. Hi, Anthony. How are you? Hi there. Yeah, great. Thanks very much. Uh, yeah, great to hear. I'm also finally, finally recovered from this lingering cough that I've had over the last few weeks. And today we're bringing you a new, really exciting episode. Anthony, you did the interview. Uh, what did you talk about? Yeah, we're really fortunate to get Dr. Andrew Gonzalez, who's from the Department of Biology at McGill University in, in Canada. And he was talking about the outcomes of the Conference on Biodiversity that took place in December of last year. And it was um, really refreshing. You know, often we talk about climate change and, and we come out of the the cops and there's a sort of bit of mm, didn't really go so well but he was really upbeat and optimistic about what was achieved and what the options were going forward so we talked through some of those and then also looked at the similarities I guess between the processes and the content and the interlinkages between climate change and biodiversity because of course as we all are aware as temperatures rise then biodiversity is being affected so I hope you enjoy it but it was for me at least it was fascinating. Yeah no I agree I also found it really fascinating. So let me introduce again Dr. Andrew Gonzalez, who is from the Department of Biology in McGill University. So welcome, Andrew. It's really great to have you joining us on this podcast. Normally, we're discussing issues around climate change, but obviously biodiversity is, is a crucial part of that. So I just wondered if you could give us a little introduction, a sort of beginner's guide to why biodiversity is important and sort of to what extent does that relate to climate change? Yes, of course. It's a pleasure to be here, Anthony. So biological diversity is, is really a word that's trying to describe the variety of life on Earth. It's sort of the infinite variety of nature that we often recognize through the species that we see around us, whether that's insects, birds, mammals, what, what have you. But we also recognize that sort of the evolutionary history that brought us to 8 million species on planet Earth today is vital to sustaining the conditions of life for, for humanity. Those species come together to form what we call ecosystems. And those ecosystems are producing the water, clean air, the biomass, that, the natural resources that we require for food, the many other natural resources that we use for um, agriculture and for building and for uh, many other facets of our economy that now we now know depends fundamentally and absolutely on the state of nature. A recent quote said that more than half of global GDP depends on, on healthy ecosystems. And so it's important that we maintain a biologically diverse ecosystems, that they are healthy, they're not degraded, and we maintain that far into the future. You talked about 50% of global GDP being dependent on the sort of biodiversity. Where do we stand? What's the, the prognosis in terms of the global biodiversity? Well, the current prognosis, and this is the consensus of a rather large number of scientists that came together uh, to produce an assessment of, of global biodiversity in 2019. This is by IPBES, or uh, Intergovernmental Platform for Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, pointed out that now approximately one million species on planet Earth are at risk of extinction. And the rate at which we are losing species is up to a hundredfold greater than the sort of the background rate that we know in the fossil record. And so it's the rates right now of loss of ecosystem are 
equivalent to what we've seen in mass extinctions. So we're at the beginning, the inception of potentially a mass extinction event that for the first time will be due to another species, would be due to humanity. And we talk about extinction, but we also should you know, recognize that approximately half of the extent and capacity of our ecosystems have been degraded. So those ecosystem benefits that we get from healthy ecosystems have now been reduced by, by approximately one half. So when we, when we take stock of the state of nature, we realize that we are now placing human well-being in jeopardy. And we have to acknowledge that it's going to require huge effort to reverse those trends, to recover and restore ecosystems, and to halt the rate of extinction right now. We're talking about reaching that by 2050, the, the new vision is to slow and stop the rate of extinction by within the coming decades. And if I remember, if I got the numbers right, you said that there's 8 million species in the world and there's 1 million is, is under threat. Is it possible to say the extent to which that sort of 1 million that's under threat, how much of that is due to sort of more local conditions and how much of that is due to sort of more global conditions such as climate change? That's an excellent question. We wouldn't have very precise numbers on our ability to take that number and sort of decompose it into you know, the global versus regional versus local contributions. We, we know that global drivers of biodiversity change, right? There are five big drivers of biodiversity change. Climate change is one of those, but of course, habitat loss, exploitation or unsustainable exploitation of, of species, widespread pollution, and uh, invasive and exotic species are, are part of the what are considered to be the big five causes, and, and they're interacting in most places in the world. They're not happening one at a time in each place. So in every case where you have a species that's threatened with extinction, it's often because of the confluence of those interacting drivers. Some of those are global, right? We're seeing trends in, in temperature, but also uh, fluctuations in, in the nature of our climate, where that precipitation or temperature or, or whatever the, the, the apparent climate risk is. But then yeah, these are compounded by the, the degradation and loss of habitat or the creation of conditions that many species can no longer tolerate or, or evolve rapidly to respond to that. So what we're faced with is a rather complicated challenge. We have to address the global drivers whilst simultaneously addressing those local, local causes of biodiversity loss. So a complex picture quite depressing, I guess, on, on many levels. But what we saw at the end of last year was the, the Conference on Biodiversity. So the Conference of the Parties, COP15. Were there significant progress made there? Is there reason to be optimistic coming out of that than maybe previous COPs? Absolutely. The CBD COP15, or the Conference of Parties of the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity, that was a, a landmark meeting. It's the sort of the supreme decision body, if you like, of the UN Convention on Biological Diversity. And it agreed on what is called a global biodiversity framework, a new framework that replaced the, the previous framework uh, called the Aichi targets. And this framework is an impressive theory of change, if you like. It's a sort of strategic plan of how to articulate a collective effort among nations to bend the curve of biodiversity. And it's built around four big goals, and 23 targets. These are, these are all new. What's new in particular about this global biodiversity framework is that, yes, it has a vision for a better future for biodiversity, much like the previous framework did, but this one is much more heavily focused on linking the aspirations to the action on the causes. 
so these 23 targets are, are much more heavily focused on action outcomes and investment in actions that are underpinning the drivers of biodiversity loss. So in the case of goal A, it's very much focused on the integrity, the connectivity and the resilience of, of natural ecosystems. We think about not only the ecosystems, but also halting the extinction rate or slowing the extinction rate and halting extinctions and also maintaining the genetic diversity of species so they can adapt to drivers like climate change that are changing very, very rapidly uh, from the point of view of the evolutionary pace of, of most populations and species. And then sort of goal B is thinking about nature's contributions to people. So it's very much focused on ensuring that people are also at the heart of it, that we recognize our needs wherever you live in the world. Goal C is sort of mobilizing the funding. What are, it's thinking about what are the monetary and non-monetary benefits that people get from, from ecosystems, from genetic resources? How do we ensure that everybody has an equitable part of those, those benefits from nature? And then goal D is thinking about mobilizing the funding to achieving the global biodiversity framework. And it's we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars a year are going to be needed if we're going to reach the vision of by 2050 of living in harmony with, with nature. And the last key point is that these targets are focusing on, on a 2030 milestones. And so these outcomes within the next eight years to really put the, the foot on the accelerator and really invest right now from the get-go to ensure that we affect transformative change. And in your view, you spoke very glowingly in some ways of the outcomes of it. You call it impressive. You said there's a, a theory of change. Obviously, the steps that you outlined, are you optimistic in terms of the governments, international financial institutions, industry, other actors will take up the challenge? You know what? I am optimistic. I don't know whether we'll reach the, the ultimate 2050 vision. So in some sense, these dates are, are, are aspirational and they're arbitrary. Uh, they're giving us something to shoot at. But what I'm seeing is even in the last 10 years, we've seen an, an uptake of biodiversity as a fundamental concept on equal footing, on equal terms with climate change as, as one of the great crises of our period. And we're seeing what's called a mainstreaming of biodiversity in the public mind, in media, but in policy as well. And so we're seeing many national governments, but crucially, subnational governments and cities, municipalities also engaging in the biodiversity agenda. So what we're seeing is that sort of a, a filtering down of action and mobilization of resources at the level that we all think about it, right? The level that we are, we're living in, our, wherever we are in the world, we're seeing local communities, local governments engage in biodiversity. And, and the other key part of this, of course, is that we can't be naive about the level of funding that's going to take to achieve this. And we're seeing, I would say for the first time, a level of interest from the private sector. Large, medium and small businesses are concerned about their impacts on biodiversity, but also the risks that they're exposed to if we degrade our ecosystems and we lose species. And so many businesses are calling upon governments to force them to report on their impacts and enforce better behaviors and to invest in innovative financial solutions for you know investing in restoration and protection of nature. So it's it's all of those two things those things coming together, right? It's a, a an awakening of the issue of biodiversity crisis that we're running out of time. We're seeing a mobilization of an effort that's not just sitting at national governments and is engaging all sectors of society. If you know if we carry that momentum forward then we're going to see successes. But we have to be realistic that that takes 
a whole of society approach. Absolutely. And it, it, in many ways, similar to the climate change, isn't it? it? It's not a single sector. You have to have governments at all levels. Cities are engaged. Citizens are engaged. But there's still blockers, aren't there? So, I mean, it, there's many incumbent industries, many governments that are dependent on existing practices that are less willing to change. Do you have that same political dynamic within the CBD? Of course, there is a, a lobby that's not quite so finely focused as the, you know, the fossil fuel lobby you know, that we were hearing about at COP27 in Egypt and Sharm el-Sheikh, where many hundreds of the participants in those conferences are, are from a fossil fuel lobby, of course. And that, that is, to a certain extent, diluted by the fact there are different aspects of, of the biodiversity issue. For example, agriculture, right? We have to transition to a more sustainable agriculture and what we're, we have to eliminate harmful subsidies, you know, subsidies that are encouraging the application of pesticides, for example, in a way that are eroding our biological diversity, whether those are insects, pollinators, whether that's soil biodiversity, that the global biodiversity framework points to the need to reduce these harmful subsidies to the order of sort of 500 billion per year over the coming years. So can we it's not just reducing subsidies, but can we reorient those subsidies so they're going into biodiversity positive action in our agricultural ecosystems, right? They, they cover approximately 40% of the Earth's land surface. If we can do better there, that'll have an enormous impact on, on biodiversity. But of course, there are other sectors, whether it's fisheries in the oceans, uh, our forestry practices, all those things have to be, there are harmful subsidies, strong lobbies. We have to turn the tide on that too. Interesting you use the, the 500 billion term in terms of subsidies. It's, it's quite a similar to within the energy sector. You have around 500 billion in terms of uh, subsidies for fossil fuels. In terms of positive issues, obviously within the climate discussion over the last years, maybe up to a decade, we've seen nature-based solutions as being one of these areas where further progress is needed, further funding, technologies, etc. And clearly that's the crossover to many elements of the Conference on Biodiversity. Were there discussions in Montreal about this sort of elements? And is, is that, a, a, again, a, a fundamental part of a more sustainable, from a biodiversity perspective, world? It really is. It's at the heart of, it was at the heart of many of the conversations. You know, I wouldn't say there's full uh, agreement on what to call it, whether that's an ecosystem-based approach or a nature-based approach. But it is clear that there are two dimensions to how... We can achieve some synergies in um, across these two conventions, right? The climate and the, and the biodiversity convention, and, and both focus. There's articles five and seven of the Paris Agreement, but also in the CBD, where we recognise nature as part of the solution. So investing in restoration and protection of carbon-rich carbon sinks, whether those are wetlands, whether that's in agricultural land, whether that's our forests, you know, fully something like 35, 37 percent of the effort to keeping us below two degrees between now and 2030 can be taken up by ecosystem-based approaches. Those, those are the latest numbers I, I seem to remember. That's a big chunk of, you know, investing in nature can contribute to, to the climate change agenda. But also we have to recognize the, the flip side is that the continued destruction, degradation, deforestation, or the degradation of carbon stores, for example, in the, in the boreal region, is a source of carbon, right? These, are, these become, ecosystems become net emitters. So by acting on climate change, we're preventing those emissions from happening, right? And so it's, it, there's a win-win outcome. There's a sort of a positive feedback that can be brought into play here. 
by acting sooner, more effectively on climate, we, we maintain our carbon sinks and we came our, our keep this carbon in the ground, so to speak, and in our biomass. <clears throat> and so the nature-based solutions and ecosystem-based approaches are both dealing with the restoring ecosystems so they become carbon sinks, but also preventing and slowing degradation so we don't we don't create these net sources of carbon in, and back into the atmosphere. And I think there was this strong agreement on the biodiversity side that this has to happen and we need to be doing this. Uh, my final point on this is that we have to be investing in it from a point of view of ecosystems contributing to resilience, societal resilience, adaptation to climate change. When we're confronted with risks such as extreme events, whether those are heat waves, flooding, fires, acknowledging that biodiversity is is integral to resilience, uh, not just of ecosystems and how they're responding to, to climate, but of, of social systems, of our communities and how we can adapt to ongoing climate change. And in terms of, you talked about the, the forestry as a, as a carbon sink. I guess it's one of the areas that remains quite contentious within the climate space is the extent to which our future emissions are based on an ability for, for forests to absorb vast amounts of, of CO2 going forward and, and how much land will be needed to reforest and sink that carbon. Again, is there any, it would seem to be that it goes hand in hand, but are this vast amounts of forestry required? Does that go hand in hand with biodiversity in some ways? Or, or is it the danger that reforestation becomes the priority because we have to meet this from a, a carbon perspective? Yeah, I think that there is a danger with a sort of a blanket approach to reforestation, especially in places where forests have no have no historical right to be there, right? They haven't been there in the past. And if we, we plant millions, if not billions of trees, then we're, we're kind of sending that initiative, that investment to its doom because many of those trees will, will not take and we will not establish forests there. So we have to be conscious that it's allowing restoration of previously forested places that happens in a natural process that does take decades for biologically rich forest ecosystems to return. Allowing that to happen is, a, is part of that forest story. Uh, I think where we come at it from a biodiversity point of view is that wherever we indeed plant trees or allow forest reforestation to happen, that we do so from a biodiversity perspective, that it's not all trees that can deal equally with changing climates, with changing risks, changing other dimensions of our, of our natural environment. We're, you know, we've set the planet's biosphere onto sort of an open-ended change, a trajectory of change. And so we know that biological diversity, in particular the functional diversity of our forests, is very important to their capacity to adapt to, to the changing environment. So if we want to keep carbon locked into those ecosystems, then we have to ensure that viable forest ecosystems exist into the future. But we also recognize that obviously the forests aren't the only you know, issue here. We're, we're talking about, in the, you know, I'm, I'm, here I am in Canada, and we're seeing our boreal forests in many places becoming net sources of carbon because of fire, because of insect pests, because of the underlying ecology of these forests are changing. And then of course the permafrost is melting. We're seeing, we're seeing microbial activity that's respiring and producing carbon and releasing it back into the atmosphere. And so it can't just be a question of planting trees. <laughs> you have to stop We have to stop emissions and act on our particular societal contribution to carbon in the atmosphere. Nature isn't gonna save us on its own. And so there's a clear biodiversity component to that. And we have to deploy that science and that knowledge in a smart way. This year, in terms of the climate COP process, we had the global stock take. So at this point, 
countries are expected to say, this is what we've done. This is the progress that we've made. An important milestone within that process. Looking forward within the sort of biodiversity process, are there similar milestones coming up that we should be looking out for? There is a parallel process. So right now, countries should be busy taking the, the agreed document this of this new global biodiversity framework and defining what are called their national biodiversity strategies and action plans. They're called NBSAPs. They're like in the climate side, the sort of the national contribution or the national commitments to reducing emissions. Here, countries on the biodiversity side have to clarify what strategies and actions they've got into place to reach the targets and goals of the, of the GBF, the Global Biodiversity Framework. That involves financial investment, what they're going to do on the financial side, who are they going to mobilize. So this is, a, as I said at the, at the outset, this is a whole of society commitment. It's, it's civil society, it's government, it's N, you know, conservation NGOs, it's academia, and, and crucially now, a huge uptick in recognition of the importance of indigenous peoples and local communities, that these are people are stewards of our, of our landscapes and our coastlines. Uh, they have an enormous understanding of the change that's going on. More than 70% of indigenous indicators of biodiversity loss are, are, are rising. So it's, you know, it's not just sort of traditional Western science. It's, it's a combination of understanding. So many countries are now developing these NBSAPs that that bring on board this sort of collective societal effort, but also in committing themselves to measurable targets. So one that's made a lot of news is this idea of protecting 30% of our land and coastlines by 2030. You know, acknowledging that many countries didn't quite meet the 17% that were the Aichi targets, the previous one, but they're close. There was, there was one of the more positive outcomes was a, a clear uptake or an increase in protected area. So... Many countries are focusing on very measurable, tangible targets like 30 by 2030. But it's more than a number. To get to 30% of, for example, 30% of Canada is a big, big chunk of territory. How do you do that? You can't just sort of top down impose parks. You have to work with all components, all sectors of society to do that. So these national biodiversity strategies and action plans will be delivered, I think it's going to be June 2024. And we're heading into COP16, the biodiversity COP16, where countries will uh, share their commitments to achieving the vision of the 2050 vision of the global biodiversity framework. So everyone is very busy uh, doing that. And as we go along, there will be a sort of a collective stock take about whether that's going to be enough. Well, thank you very much. I mean, that's absolutely something to look out for. And, and where will that take place? Do we know yet? Yeah, COP16 is in 2024 and it'll be in Turkey where the world will gather again to, to assess the degree to which it's mobilized resources and, and, and efforts in, in light of the new global biodiversity framework. And, I, and I, I'm pretty optimistic, I'm pretty positive about the next few years, that seeing an enormous mobilization of different communities, different actors, public, private sector around the biodiversity agenda. And um, it's something to, it's a, it'll be a mile, another milestone meeting, I think, when we realize what the world has come together to try to achieve. Well, I look forward to it. And thank you so much indeed for this really enlightening discussion. That was my pleasure. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, please feel free to listen back to previous episodes, which can be found on the Chatham House website, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and all other major podcast outlets. Thanks very much. And, and do be in contact if you've got ideas for other people for us to interview. 
Our inboxes are going to be swamped. Excellent. <laughs> Bye. Thank you.